welcome to episode 26 of Long Hair Do Care, a podcast about queer intersectional eco-feminist topics. And today's topic is going to be Great Salt Lake with Jamie Butler. I'm your host, Georgie Corkery, pronouns she, her, hers, also happy to go by they, them, theirs. And our special guest, Jamie Butler, is the coordinator for Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. She has worked there for about 13 years. Before that, she was a wildlife biologist for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, which I also worked for them in the past, so connection there. And before that, she was a research biologist with the Great Salt Lake Brine Trip Industry, and I just barely learned that she was also on the board for Great Salt Lake Audubon in the past, probably like nine years ago, and I'm currently on the board for Great Salt Lake Audubon, so another great connection. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Fisheries and Wildlife from USU, which is funny because there are no fish at Great Salt Lake, and that is where Jamie does most of her work. She has spent her entire career and academic career focusing on Great Salt Lake. Welcome, Jamie, to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having <laughs> me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. What are you most excited to talk about today or most excited to share? I never shut up about Great Salt Lake, and so <laughs> I'm really excited just to talk about all things Great Salt Lake and kind of current events. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I have known about you for a while because of Great Salt Lake Audubon, and everyone's like, oh, we should reach out to Jamie Butler for this. And then there was the Great Salt Lake Institute... Those little videos that you did or seminars? What what am I thinking of? We did a salty science seminars. Salty science seminars. And you were always a part of those. And I was like, wow, Jamie's so cool. <laughs> so um, that was before I even thought about doing a podcast. But then when I did, I was like, Jamie's somebody who would be a cool person to get on. You were on my list. Yay. And now you're on my podcast. <laughs> before we jump into our topic of Great Salt Lake, of course, we need to talk about Cats, wildlife, and conscious content consumption. So, Jamie, have you interacted with any cats recently? Uh, Georgie, I, I live on a farm, and <laughs> um, we have one farm cat. Her name oh. is Jumper. She can almost go to the bar. She's going to turn 21 this summer. So wow. she's this beautiful gray, blue, kind of Russian blue cat named Jumper. And I watch her hunting for mice and she likes to ride on tractors. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, she'll scare me because I'll, I'll go into one of these barns and she'll move and scare me really bad. That's great. <laughs> I love that. Uh, jumper. Jumper. And Jumper has different rules for me than everybody else, and I don't know why that is, but um, she bites me a lot. Oh, okay. But she doesn't bite other people. She doesn't bite Does she my... jump out at you? Because I know some cats do that. They, no. like, hide, and then, wah! It's uh, if I... If I pet her for two seconds too long, mm. or if I try to pick her up, I but I have different rules, and I'm not sure why, so yeah. I would love to... <laughs> she's, she's a cat. Yeah, I love to get in her head. Well, cats are definitely lessons in consent, you know? They might want one thing and then they'll change their mind, and that has to be okay. The cats that I've seen are Pepe, which is my friend Kelly's cat. I brought Pepe up before. Blue eyes, and they're kind of cross-eyed, and I love it. And then a long-haired street cat that had one eye. Don't know its name, but I was in Logan when I saw it, and it was very precious. And then... Did you make up a name for him? Like, what would you name him if... Oh, that's a good name. Probably, like, Scallywag, because 
pirates, I don't know, one eye. And maybe that's, you know, pigeonholing any animal or including humans that only have one eye. Um, I, so I don't know what else I would call it. Maybe Daisy. Daisy. <laughs> I like that. It's very cute. <laughs> and then Milo, my friend Ronan's cat, who I've been seeing a lot. I think the last like three podcast episodes I've talked about Milo and Ronan. I uh, came on the podcast to talk about a positive transition for episode 20. So shout out to Ronan. Ronan's great. But those are all the cats I saw. I, I thought I had more, but not according to my list, which I do keep a pretty good detailed list of the cats I've seen. For wildlife, have you seen any cool wildlife lately? I live in this really wide open alfalfa and agricultural farm and there are raptors everywhere. And I wish I knew my raptors better because... I don't. There's some big ones that are red tails and there's some others and but they interact in these really interesting, cool ways that they, like, I love to watch. Swoop to each other and like twist around each other. Yeah, and the kestrels, there are some kestrels that nest on the farm that I am living on and they actually you know, they're a little teeny tiny little fast mm -hmm. raptor and, they'll and they're beautiful. And they're beautiful and they're very loud when they want to be and they'll chase off these red tail hawks that are four times their size that are just huge. And <laughs> I think it's, I love watching it and it's like my farm TV goes by the windows. <laughs> we are um, currently at Jamie's farmhouse and there are these gorgeous windows and you can just see the fields. So Jamie's pointing out to the fields and currently I see no raptors, but I can definitely imagine watching them through these windows. My wildlife for April, I'm reflecting on the last month, was just a rabbit, and I was running with my friend Liz, so not that exciting, but <laughs> that's what I have, is a rabbit, and probably some birds. I don't know why, but I haven't really been keeping a list of birds. I just kind of see them and appreciate them, and as a birder, with birder friends, maybe that'll disappoint some of my birding friends, but <laughs> if I see any cool ones or big ones... I'll write it down. You're, you're going to get shamed by I'm the bird get nerds. shamed, yeah. I've been writing them down because I'm in a new place. And mm. every time I go, you know, every time I started birding when I was living in Park City. And I was ashamed of myself that I didn't keep track of, like, when certain birds came or about how many were there. So I learned my lesson. And I've been keeping a list of what birds I see and when that are on the farm. Oh, gosh. I should learn my lesson from you. Okay. I'll... <laughs> I'll try that for next month. But I'm pretty lazy about it, too. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't get too worried about what kind of Oriole I saw. Or, yeah. you know, it's a very mellow. Yeah. You're like, that was an Oriole. Yeah. Cool, 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 yeah. cool. Okay. I like that. I will do that. For conscious content consumption this week, I'll go first. I have quite a long one. And then, you know, maybe it'll spur something that you want to share. But bear with me, folks. I'm going to be reading some quotes. And feel free to comment as we go, Jamie. What I have to share this week is a novel. I feel like I haven't talked about novels on the podcast for a little bit. This book was so good. I just finished it, and it's The Overstory, a novel by Richard Powers, and it was published in 2018. And my friend Liz, the one who I saw the rabbit with, she lent me the book. She recommended it. And uh, thanks, Liz. It was great. It was one of the better books that I've read recently. The book is about nine Americans whose unique life experiences with trees bring them together to address the destruction of forests. The chapters are Roots, Trunk, Crown, and Seeds. 
So only four of them. And the way Richard Powers wrote it was beautiful. In Roots, we are introduced to each of the characters and their backstories. And then through Trunk, Crown, and Seeds, the novel just jumps from character to character and their different point of views. And all that being said, it just has such excellent character development, which for me is what can make a book really good. Of course, besides the plot, but it was beautifully written and excellent character development. Additionally, it talked a lot about dendrology, which is the study of trees or the signs of trees, and then history, kind of the history of uh, logging and the American chestnut tree. And I liked to learn a little bit about that. It wasn't very intense, so you didn't like have to know dendrology. They don't even mention the word dendrology. I just know it. Also, it made me cry at least three times, which I think is an indicator of pretty good writing. Another description for it, I don't really want to tell you what the plot is because this is just one of those books where it's better for you not to know, and there's so much going on in the plot that I would just confuse you. But here's another description of the book. It is a sweeping, impassioned work of activism and resistance that is also a stunning evocation of the natural world. From the roots to the crowns and back to the seeds, the chapters that I mentioned earlier, Richard Powers' 12th novel unfolds in concentric rings of interlocking fables that range from antebellum New York to the late 20th century timber wars of the Pacific Northwest and beyond. There is a world alongside ours, vast, slow, and interconnected, resourceful, magnificently inventive, and almost invisible to us. They're talking about trees here. This is a story of a handful of people who learn how to see that world and who are drawn up into its unfolding catastrophe. Yeah, I don't want to tell you what the story is about, but I think that description is really good. Even just the vocabulary in it and its poeticness reflects the book well. Uh, it is one of the longer books I've read. It's 612 pages. And normally I stick to a novel around 400 pages because I try to read one a month. This one definitely took me two months, but it was really good, so worth it. The awards that it got are numerous. Uh, it was a winner of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in fiction, and uh, if you've listened to past episodes of mine, you know I used to think that the name for that award was Pulit Surprise, but it's Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I always want to say Pulitzer Prize. Um, but Pulitzer Prize in fiction, it was shortlisted for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. It was a New York Times bestseller. Additionally, it was a New York Times notable book and Washington Post, Times, Oprah Magazine, Newsweek, Chicago Tribune, and Kirksis Review, which I've never heard of. And Amazon Best Book of the Year. So um, it has a number of awards for good reason. And my favorite author right now, Barbara Kingsolver, she has this to say about the book. Quote, Monumental, the overstory accomplishes what few living writers from either camp, art, or science could attempt. Using the tools of the story, he pulls readers' heart first into a perspective so much longer lived and more subtly developed than the human purview that we gain glimpses of a vast primordial sensibility while watching our own kind get whittled down to size. A gigantic fable of genius truth. 
And I agree with Barbara. Barbara's awesome. No one could disagree with her. I do have three quotes to share with all of y'all. And the first one, super short. Second one, longer. Third one, pretty long, but I think you'll like it. So bear with me. First quote, what you make from a tree should be at least as miraculous as what you cut down. And this quote was brought up a lot because they were cutting down thousand year old redwood trees. And I really like that, you know, even if it's a small tree, maybe you should try to make something just as miraculous. And that's not often the case. We obviously need lumber for a number of things, but I thought that was a beautiful quote either way. Second quote, we found that trees could communicate over the air and through their roots. Common sense hooted us down. We found that trees take care of each other. Collective science dismissed that idea. Outsiders discovered how seeds remembered the seasons of their childhood and sent buds accordingly. Outsiders discovered that trees sense the presence of other nearby life, that a tree learns to save water, that a tree feeds their young and synchronizes their masts and bank sources and warn kin to send out signals to wasps to come and save them from attacks. Here's a little outsider information, and you can wait for it to be confirmed. A forest knows things. They wire themselves up underground. There are brains down there, ones our own brains aren't shaped to see. Root plasticity, solving problems, and making decisions. Fungal synapsis. What else do you want to call it? Link enough trees together, and a forest grows aware. Part of the book, they talk a lot about how trees communicate, and people didn't want to accept that for a long time. And... The character is specifically in the book that this quote's talking about. She studies trees, and I think she's based off of a real person. Her name's Patricia in the book, but there is an actual dendrologist who wrote The Mother Tree. It's another book. Um, oh, that's a great title. Yeah, 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 and it talks about how trees are connected to each other, and I think that character might be based mm -hmm. on that author, whose name I do not know. Uh, last quote which I like very much because it talks about the evolution of life on planet Earth. So it's going to talk about life on Earth, how it developed if we were to take that timeline and shrink it down into one day, which I thought was really interesting. So here we go. Quote, Say the planet is born at midnight and it runs for one day. First, there's nothing. Two hours are lost to lava and meteors. Life doesn't show up until 3 or 4 a.m. Even then, it's just the barest self, copying bits and pieces. From dawn to late morning, a million, million years of branching, nothing more extensive than lean and simple cells. Then there's everything. Something wild happens, not long after noon. One kind of simple cell enslaves a couple of others. Nuclei gets membranes. Cells evolve organelles. What was once a solo campsite grows into a town. The day is two-thirds done when animals and plants part ways. And still, life is only single cells. Dusk falls before compound life takes hold. Every large living thing is a latecomer, showing up after dark. 9 p.m. brings jellyfish and worms. Later that hour comes a breakout the backbones, cartilage, and an explosion of body forms. From one instant to the next, countless new stems and twigs in the spreading crown burst open in runs. Plants make it up 
on the land just before 10 p.m. Then insects, who take instantly to the air. Moments later, tetrapods crawl from the tidal muck out from the ocean, carrying on their skins and in their guts whole worlds of earlier creatures. By 11 p.m., dinosaurs have shot their bolt, leaving the mammals and the birds in charge for just one hour. Somewhere in the last 60 minutes, high up in the phylogenetic canopy, life grows aware. Creatures start to speculate. Animals start to teach their children about the past and the future. Animals learn to hold rituals. Anatomically modern man shows up four seconds before midnight. The first cave paintings appear three seconds later, leaving only one second left. And in a thousandth of a click of the second hand, life solves the mystery of DNA and starts to map the tree of life itself. By midnight, most of the globe is converted to row crops for the care and feeding of just one species. And that's when the tree of life becomes something else again. That's when the giant trunk starts to teeter. End quote. That was a long one, but... I love that word teeter, too. Yeah. Like, it's totally, yeah, talk, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And I, I just like the imagery of how slow everything moves, and then the last hundredth or ten thousandth of a second, boom, the globe is now catered to humans, and we're totally changing it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. not all the book is based around that. That was just like one long quote at the end of the last chapter, but it's a good book. Everyone should check out the overstory. It's a longer one. It's beautiful. You'll learn a little bit. You'll cry. It's great. <laughs> I love it. It sounds really good. Did you have anything you want to share for conscious content well, consumption? I do. Cause you yeah, the first quote that you read about talking about, you know, how you need to make something just as extraordinary out of these things. I've been, not even reading this. I've been listening to it on audiobook while I do dishes or Love go on it. walks or whatever I'm a big it fan is. Of that. But it's um, called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. Yes. And I'm right now, I mean, just today before you got here, was listening to a section where she talks about how they would make these baskets out of birch and how most of the basket weaving, I mean, and they would make these incredible baskets to harvest food or even, you know, water for all of these things. Mm -hmm. And she talked about that most of the, most of the basket weaving happens before you weave the basket, that it's like harvesting the tree and processing the wood. And I really loved how, and I don't have the quote, but, (laughs) but, they talk about, remember, you know, I think it was her ancestor that was like, remember, you're holding this whole tree's life in your hand. And like the, I I would paraphrase it in my own words is like, and you need to like honor that and make something beautiful and useful out of it. So I thought like those were really cool parallel stories and just kind of background braiding sweet grass is uh, Robin Wall Kimmer is a PhD scientist who is also an indigenous person who has this knowledge of indigenous ways, but also has this PhD Mm -hmm. in a scientific field. And so the way that she marries those, I think is um, a really interesting model for how we should treat our, our planet, you know, with different perspectives. Yeah. Not everything has to be this hard science that is rooted in white colonial culture. Yeah. So 
this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, has been brought up on the podcast at least once before. I have not yet read it, but it's on my shelf. And um, it's a big book, also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll get to it maybe after grad school. Yeah. Um, because I like novels a lot, and that's what's been moving me through grad school. But authors like her and a few others, I'm thinking of Terry Tempest Williams being one of them. But women and people of different backgrounds that don't just come from academia write such beautiful books that have so much information and so much, you know, scientific information, historical mm -hmm. information that is so powerful. And it's really cool to see these newer books come out because I've tried to read old books about trees written by men and I just can't do it. <laughs> um, you know, when I, so I'm going back in time, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> I was at USU from 1994 to 1999. And one of those years, Terry Tempest Williams came to do a reading. Oh, that's and so cool. it was like really cool. And guess what? I didn't even know who she was. <laughs> I had no clue. But my friend, Elisa, knew about her and like brought all of these books to like have Terry have Tempest signed. Williams sign. Yeah. And, you know, she's such a powerful writer that we got to the front of this line after this reading. And Elisa got really emotional and like ran away oh. and left me with all of these books. And I was like, oh, well, I can do that. And so Terry Tempest Williams started asking me questions and like, who should I sign this to? And was so supportive and awesome because she asked me like, what are you doing? And I told her mm -hmm. I'm going into the natural resources. I'm getting a degree in fisheries. And she said, we need more women like you. Like she was super supportive where uh, people hadn't said that to me before ever before. I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. So like it was different and it was really, I mean, it stuck with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even hearing that right now, someone going to grad school in 2022, I hear that like, oh yeah, you need to go work for the forest service or, you know, women need to, people of color, queer people, like you need to get into these spaces mm -hmm. and like you make them better because they're so stuck in these ways and we need people like you. So it's so cool that you yeah. heard that from Terry Timbs. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, she's great. Everyone should also check out her book. Mm -hmm. She's written a number of them. I think I've talked about When Women Were Birds, Erosion, and... I don't know the other book I talked about, but look her up. She's a great author. I'll link all of these conscious content things in the show notes. Now let's uh, jump into our topic, which is Great Salt Lake. And your career, Jamie, has centered around Great Salt Lake. How did that start and what draws you to Great Salt Lake? I accidentally started working at Great Salt Lake because <laughs> I got my first job. And when, you know, when you're a natural resource student, you took your first job. It didn't matter what it was. And I think now it's a lot different. And I was like, ah, I grew up here in Salt Lake and I kind of had the same feelings like, ah, I don't know. Like, okay, I'll just do this thing until I get another job. And I started go I'm I was tasked with going into Farmington Bay and it's the smelliest most disgusting part <laughs> of Great Salt Lake and we were asked to figure out how to um, catch eared grebes so eared grebes are these birds and they land on Great Salt Lake in kind of the late summer and the fall and they lose their feathers they lose their ability to fly and they just gorge themselves they on lose branch. their ability to fly yes 
So I didn't know that. Yeah. So they, and they lose their feathers and all of their feathers. I mean, they molt. So they lose their like flight feathers. Yeah. Um, and they lose their ability to fly after they, you know, molt their flight feathers and then they start gorging on brine shrimp. So they eat 22 to 30,000 brine shrimp every single day. Wow. And they just, I wish that, um, your listeners could see me cause I want to like do this little squeezy thing. Like I would squeeze like a little <laughs> kitty cat. If I picked up a kitty cat mm-hmm. and kind of squeeze it, you can tell when they're fat, when they have like a lot of fat can, like, and squeeze their little you, pudge, you can like squeeze their pudge and you can, you know, the first part of the season when you catch them, they're really bony and you get a little bit worried about them and quickly they, they gain tons of weight. Their, the, uh, digestive system actually get changes its size. It increases by about 30%. And birds are so cool. Birds are so cool. (laughs) And so we didn't know how to catch these eared grebes. We had no idea how to catch them. And we were trying to use mist nets and mist nets you might know are normally what people use in like forest situations. And they put their like, a net that they stake between two poles and that you can't see them very well. And so little birds will like fly into them and you can catch them and band them and weigh them. But nobody had caught birds underwater like this. And so we tried and tried and tried. It was stinky. It was disgusting. We were like hanging out. I feel like they get stuck in them under the water, right? And that would we were very conscientious of like standing there watching because it was in a very shallow place and you could see if they got yeah. caught and we caught a couple and then we started using gill nets. So gill nets are what fisheries biologists and what fishermen use and they'll string them across a lake or a stream and you catch, depending on like what the size of the net was, you would catch fish in it. Yeah. And the idea behind a gill net is that the fish will go in, they'll poke their head through and then realize that they're in something, but they can't back up because it catches on their gills, Mm -hmm. which sounds horrific. Horrific. Yeah. (laughs) The way that we used them though, is we would, you know, there's between when I started working at Great Salt Lake, there was between one and 2 million eared grebes. Now there's more like four or 5 million. And so it's so, gone up. So it's gone up. Okay. So and, and so, yeah. And we can get back to that. But <laughs> the cool thing is, is there's so, I mean, even at one or two million eared grebes, there's a lot of them. And so we would take this gill net that's like a net and there's a weight line that sinks into the water. And then there's a float line that floats on top and then the net hangs in between it. And we would go to these big congregations and we kind of run a circle around them. Some of them would get caught. Some of them would get away, but we would be right on the boat and we would take them in before they drowned. Yeah. Like we, the goal was like, we wanted to see their metabolism. We wanted to understand. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, why are you catching them? Yeah. We wanted to understand their metabolism and that equals how much food they're eating. Okay. And so all of this research was done in conjunction with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. They wanted to know if people were, if the brine shrimp harvesters were leaving enough brine shrimp for the eared grebes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because the brine shrimp industry is really big at Great Salt Lake. Yeah. The brine shrimp industry, if, if you're not familiar, the industry, they come out and they harvest the eggs of the brine shrimp that are laid in the fall. So all the brine shrimp die in the winter. They lay these eggs in the fall. The winter goes on. There's no live brine shrimp in the water, except for these little dormant eggs. And then in the springtime, those hatch out and repopulate. The cool thing is, is those eggs can be used as live fish feed. Oh, okay. So 
something like 40 to 60% of the domestic marine commercial aquaculture. So like the marine fish that we eat in the United States is produced. Tuna, salmon? I'm not sure about tuna. Some like stock salmon, but especially commercial salmon for sure. You're right. And then also prawns. A lot of prawns are fed baby brine shrimp. So you can send these eggs all around the world. They're teeny tiny. They look like sand and you can dry them and disinfect them. And then they use seawater and hatch those little eggs. And then there are these baby brine shrimp that move around. They have tons (laughs) of protein and fat and they feed the fish that we eat. That's crazy to think about. This is tangential, but I actually met up with Jamie. Didn't meet up. I ran into Jamie at the Friends of Great Salt Lake Issues Forum, and there I learned that the salt industry that's also at Great Salt Lake, they extract a lot of salt because obviously Great Salt Lake, there's salt there. That's in a lot of the aluminum cans that we have and a lot of the products. Most of the salt that is used in the United States, some large percentage of it comes from Great Salt Lake. And so would you say the same is similar about like the brine shrimp? Yeah. That's used to catch a lot of the sea or fish that we eat. Yeah, it's used to raise a lot of the fish and the prawns that we eat. So it does enter our food chain. The other thing I would say is, I mean, like a lot of people think that nothing comes from Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the mineral industries. They actually, uh, one of the things that they extract is fertilizer. So we're fertilizing our farms with potash. That's like a natural source of potash that's just extracted using solar evaporation. And I think that's really important to know that our food resources also rely on Great Salt Lake for that fertilizer. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's really cool. That's so cool to know that Great Salt Lake is a resource, is an ecosystem that serves us in so many different ways. And I think I think one thing that I've been really chewing on lately is... The idea that, like in the past, in the past, some of the narrative that I've heard is um, if there's farms, farms kill Great Salt Lake. If there's Great Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake kills farms. And I actually think that we're very interdependent. I think our farms are actually, and the water that goes to farms could be used as like a reservoir to protect the lake during these very low times. Huh. How so? So if I converted this field that we're looking out in and I converted that to homes, we would never get that water back. That water would always go to homes. Yeah, because it would go into the plumbing and the sewage system and then to a treatment system. It wouldn't go in as groundwater. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so these farms are providing lots of services. So we could, you know, a lot of these farms are farming alfalfa and alfalfa is what's called perennial. So it means it comes back every year, at least for a few years, and there's multiple crops every year. Okay. So in the springtime, you don't have to water a lot because there's rain falling and there's water in the ground and farmers might get a really good crop out of that. But then that second cutting might be moderate water use and moderate yield. Yeah. And if we can make some market incentives that farmers get paid for that water and instead of putting that water on the field, maybe it goes to Great Salt Lake. Yeah. There's some really good incentives for that. Later, I definitely wanted to talk to you about some of the policies that were passed at the legislative session. But that's really interesting to think about alfalfa that way 
when I was an undergrad at the University of Utah. I feel like I was told that alfalfa is the enemy and it's a bad crop to grow here because it is so water intensive. And um, and I'm not ever going to say it's perfect, but there are... A few things are. But a few things are and having... Having our farms as a reservoir for like groundwater, there's lots of wildlife that live in these perimeters. Yeah. There's lots of reason for preserving open space that can absorb water. And I'm still exploring all of these kind of yeah. like, because I think this year has been a little bit of a mind shift for me in terms of like how I view agriculture, both mm-hmm. because I moved to a farm, but also be- because of you know, some of the work that's been done in the legislature and because of these new thoughts that it's, it's good that we have farms and we could use farms as like a buffer during these very low water levels. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially after going to the Friends of Great Salt Lake Issues Forum, which was excellent. Good job, friends. I started to change my perspective about it a little bit too. And also just being a grad student and learning, you know, we we need these farms. We need these industries. Mm. We can't just be like, okay, well, we're not going to farm ever. We need to figure out a way to make everything work out together. And it seems like there's a really good path forward for that. Mm. Uh, maybe that's a good launching off point to talk about some of these new, are they laws that are being put into place? I know. Um, so the legislative session, the Utah legislative session happens uh, for 40 days once a year. And that's where they pass different bills. And so it'll be like a House bill number whatever or Senate bill number something. And then those become laws. Is that correct? It is. And I have to tell you, I just barely learned about the legislative process this year (laughs) because I worked with this sixth grade class at Emerson Elementary in Salt Lake City. And we tried to get Brian Shrimp listed as the official Utah State crustacean. (gasps) I saw that. And it... Did it, it happen? It didn't pass, but it okay. didn't fail. So they just ran out of time. Okay. And so next year, we're going to go for it again because it didn't fail. And <laughs> just so you know, we, I mean, and all of this comes from like my wonderful college students at Westminster that yeah. were like, one day they came and they're like, did you know only six states have an official state crustacean and Utah is not one of them. And we could have the brine shrimp. Why is it not the brine <laughs> shrimp? And so uh, we went through the legislative process with this sixth grade class. And just so you know, I'm 46 and I've never learned about the process until we tried to list this silly state crustacean. Because you have to get it passed as a bill. or Yeah. So what happens is like there's the House and the Senate and you have to have your bill. First, it goes through the House of Representatives. And so these are like your local leaders that are representative. Lesser, she actually sponsored this bill. So we asked her to sponsor this bill. Okay. And then we so kind you of, need a sponsor. So you need a sponsor. Okay. And then you write up, I gave her points. Actually, the sixth grade students gave her points. Oh, so cute. Of like, why should, you know, Brian Shrimp be the official Utah State crustacean? And then she puts it forth to the whatever committee it is. So it yeah. went to the Natural Resources and Environment Committee. That makes sense. Yeah. And then it passed. And then it goes, I know, so yay. So that was in committee. So then it goes to the entire house. And it's like on this big floor at the Capitol building where there's lots of people sitting on Mm. like desks and there's very ornate rails (laughs) in front of you and lots of... Yes, I've been in this room. I've taken a tour of the Capitol a few times. 
It's beautiful. And I've been there for the legislative session yeah. a few times. So Yeah. So it passed there. And then Senator Kitchens, he Senator Kitchen sponsored it in the Senate. So it went from the House, past the House of Representatives, and then it goes to the Senate. Yeah. It, and I have to say, this is a tangent, but hold this spot in your head, everybody, about the legislative process. But Derek Kitchen is awesome. I love Derek Kitchen so much. He is who filed a lawsuit against the state. So it was Kitchen versus Herbert, who was the governor at the time, to legalize gay marriage in Utah. Utah was the third state before it was legalized federally. He's so cool. And then him and his ex-husband, they had a booth at the farmer's market. He became a city council member. And now he's a senator. And then last summer on Radio West... He came out as polyamorous. She's like, I went through all this stuff and I like came out as a gay person, but like we had a triad, like we were a triad and I couldn't come out as that because being polyamorous is worse than being gay. And I saw him at the farmer's market and I know him a little bit and I was like, thank you for coming out publicly. And I gave him a big hug and I love him. Derek Kitchen is awesome. You should go to his restaurant, Lazise. It's so good. Anyways. And he, <laughs> I mean, he sponsored this bill and these young people from Mr. Craner's great class at Emerson were on the Capitol and he actually we delivered them pizza after Aww. after the bill didn't pass and I have to say I'm kind of bummed out it didn't pass because there were some anti-trans bills that were voted on late Ugh. on the floor and so they, they could push that through I know it, is, Brian Trump are ugh. way more important than deal than like than discriminating trans, trans rights yes. yeah yes. I 100% agree so just so you know um, <laughs> anyway I agree with you on Senator Kitchen so yeah. that we went through this legislative process and not only well Brian Trump were not listed as the official state crustacean but lots and lots of bills were passed about that will directly and indirectly affect Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. And I think the work that's gone on behind the scenes for over a decade maybe has been a little bit disregarded because 2022 was a great, it was a banner year, but we were set up for success. Yeah. Cause of all the work that had happened yeah. in the past. Yeah. So I'm trying, I'm going through my notes cause I have like, <laughs> I have a list of all of these and I don't want to tell all of your listeners all, all the of the details, details yeah. but I would like to say this year, Great Salt Lake got a ton of money. So there's a ton of money and that was all through ARPA funds. So that was federal dollars that came through Great Salt Lake to meter some water and to help agricultural producers optimize their water use. So that's super duper important. And just putting more money into like management and the engineering department at the Utah Department of Water Resources yeah. was like needed. They were short staffed. Getting all this funding so that people can actually do water conservation efforts mm -hmm. so that Great Salt Lake has water going to it. And after this, we'll talk about some of the threats that are facing Great Salt Lake. I was going to ask that first, but we just had such a good segue into policy. So let's keep talking about that. Well, and then there were, uh, there were lots of other bills that were thinking about how our land use planning affects our water, because we haven't really thought about that, like grasses and should people have lawns and how can we like zone better and make better rules so that water can get to Great Salt Lake. For city planning specifically. Mm -hmm. They passed some in-stream flow amendments that you can like keep water 
I mean, in-stream flow is what is in a stream and what water is flowing in a stream. And if a water is flowing in a stream that supports fish, eventually that's going to make it to Great Salt Lake. Yeah. And so we pass some of those. And the reason why water wouldn't stay in a stream is because it would be diverted to go to agriculture. Or to human development. Or to human or to any human, I mean, any human development. And so there was this really important change or like redefinition of a word called beneficial use. Yes. Yeah. And so beneficial use has always been intended to help humans. And so if you're putting water on crops, if you're watering a city, if you're improving the land, it's a beneficial use. Mm -hmm. And, and in the past, that did not include having water in a stream going to a lake. But now, and correct me if I'm wrong, if it stays in the stream, that's good for the environment. It's good for us. If it makes it to Great Salt Lake, that's great for the lake and the ecosystem, which in turn is good for us. So Ex now that is a beneficial use. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, the, it, you know, that redefinition was very, very important. Yeah. And then they changed things like the, instead of they can do, you didn't use, if I was an agricultural producer, I couldn't do a split season lease. So I couldn't. What does that mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> so think about alfalfa we talked about earlier. There's like three seasons. There are three cuttings of alfalfa. There's an early cutting that, you know, you don't have to use a lot of water. It's high yield. It's very economically beneficial. In the middle of the summer, when we're not getting enough water, it can be kind of, you use moderate amounts of water and get a moderate yield. Yeah. Before you couldn't, and then that the third season would be like high, high, high amounts of water and very low yield. And so if I could say, maybe just take those first two cuttings that had high yield yeah, and, and moderate water use, you know, I could maybe send that third cutting to Great Salt Lake instead of watering the field. I could let it go fallow. And it'll come back the next year. That's yeah. the beauty of alfalfa. So I think putting some of those in, they're very technical and super boring. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. But they're really important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think putting some of those things in place is really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, you know, from water lawyers, I mean, I'm a scientist. I can tell you what's going to happen if the salt content increases. I can yeah. tell you what I think will happen to bird populations. But I mean, water law is so complex. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand from water lawyers <laughs> that are way smarter than I am, we pretty much have our tools in our toolbox. And now the future, because now we're like, oh, now what do we do? Yeah. Like now we have this banner year. We have super low lake levels. We have this banner year at the legislature with laws passed. And banner year means excellent year? I mean, like nobody's ever seen any kind. Like there was some laws passed in 2012. There was some in 2018. There was one in 2019. And mm -hmm. then in 2020, I'm looking at two pages of all, you know, these, different all these different bills, bills and laws. And laws. I mean, it was epic. The paradigm changed. <laughs> like Great Salt Lake got cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, get, I think I started volunteering and working on the board for Great Salt Lake Audubon in 2019. Nobody really knew or cared about the lake. And it seems like since I started that, it's, yeah. It's cool. Everyone's talking about it. My Uber driver the other day was like, did you know this about the lake? And I was like, I actually, I did. And it's great to hear you talk about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Well, that's really great. And one more question about the legislation and a little bit about water law that you may or may not know. And then we'll talk about the threats that Great Salt Lake is facing. There's the doctrine of prior appropriation, and that's around water law. That's basically what Utah uses as water law. From what I learned as an undergrad, there was part of that law that stated you use all of your water or you lose your right to it. So if I had 10 gallons of water to use, which would be a ridiculous amount to use, but for the sake of being simple, you have 10 gallons, and if one year I only used five, then I'd lose my right to that other five gallons that I didn't use. Is that correct? That's how I understand it. Um, And then that's changed recently? um, And so I can't speak to that. And actually, uh, if your listeners are really like nerdy, like (laughs) want to go into water law, I suggest a podcast by a person named Emily Lewis, who works at Clyde Snow, and it's called The Ripple Effect. I've actually listened to it, and I also agree. I highly suggest listening to it. Yeah. It's it's, It's detailed. It is detailed, but in a very digestible manner mm-hmm. is how, you know, cause she kind of, she asks all the right questions yeah. and knows how to kind of dig information out of really experts that are mm-hmm. experts in these really obscure fields, <laughs> you know? And so I don't know the answer to your question, but one thing I did learn this, this year was that nobody's ever been there. Nobody's water right has ever been taken away because of prior appropriation. Oh. And so while that might be on the books, what that's I understand is that that's not really how it works. I mean, cause honestly, Georgie, we don't like, you see the ditches out here. Yeah. It, they're not measuring anything. They're a way to organize how water goes here and there. And so I think some of these thoughts about um, measuring water and coming up with creative solutions so that farmers get their water. Yeah. But they could also use less water or get more water to Great Salt Lake by getting paid to follow their field. Or I think some of those are really important. And I think it's a really important opportunity in time for us to like partner with farmers and with everybody in the 22,000 square mile watershed. Yeah. And I would say we're totally set up for success. People have been thinking about this for decades. People study the teeniest, tiniest, like nuances of salt content in Great Salt Lake <laughs> that will just make you go to sleep. If yep. I mean, it, like, I've been there. I was the, I was at Great Salt Lake Issues Forum, and there was a few presentations like that, and my ADHD brain was just. <laughs> It wasn't there. It was probably thinking about who I wanted to interview for my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the takeaway is we know how to manage salt content in Great Salt Lake. We've been managing Great Salt Lake for over 150 years since white settlers came around through either our non-management or through our active management. And in the 1980s, when I met Great Salt Lake, it was the highest it had Mm -hmm. ever been. And people often say to me... Well, remember when it was that high, it's going to get that high again. And I don't think it'll ever get that high again. We are in a drought that we haven't seen for over 1,200 years. Mm -hmm. We are diverting lots of water. We're starting to see climate change. And so we're really at this bottom, bottom point. I think we will go up. And what we need to do now 
is protect the lake like we did in the 1980s. And when we were trying to pump water out of the lake, protect farms, protect businesses, we need to do that contingent now mm -hmm. at low water levels to prevent... Instead of the flood level, we're at the drought level. Yeah. And, and the cool thing is, is we know how to manage these things and we're set up for success and how to have strategies. It just depends on the amount of water that comes in. Is that, mm -hmm. is that the kicker? Mm -hmm. That's okay. a kicker. <laughs> and, and I get a little bit frustrated I heard about this study to pipe water from the Pacific Ocean. Oh, I heard I saw it in the news and it was also brought up at the forum mm -hmm. that we that I keep bringing up and <laughs> I'm pretty sure people in the room booed. Mm -hmm. Which and was a really interesting thing to happen at like an academic type forum. Mm -hmm. And I think crazy ideas are awesome. Mm -hmm. We need people to be thinking outside of the box. <laughs> but, uh, but it also, it also kind of got spread around. Like that's the only solution that we're thinking yeah. about. And there's lots of solutions. We have the tools. We're poised. We just need to take action. Yeah. I hear that. You do have to throw out all sorts of ideas. Mm -hmm. That's how so many things have been designed and so many good things and so many TV shows and stand up comedy bits. You throw out a lot of things and then you find what really works and, uh, yeah. Piping water from the ocean to Great Salt Lake is one of those things that you throw out and then you just keep it out and you don't use it, I would say. But this is a good segue into talking about what the threats are to the lake, which primarily is drought, right? And maybe talk about that and the consequences that we would experience and are experiencing. Right now in 2022, we're seeing the cumulative effects on Great Salt Lake of water diversion. So, you know, most water being prevented from reaching Great Salt Lake, either by going to agricultural or municipalities. We're seeing the effect of this extreme drought in the American Southwest that we haven't seen in the past. You know, we haven't seen anything like this in 1200 years. So this is like a giant anomaly. When you listen to the these climate scientists that are talking about this drought, you can't take climate change out of that equation. And so we're going to get what is predicted to be longer times between wet years. So we're going to have these prolonged dry years, pr prolonged dry seasons, dry centuries, whatever mm -hmm. they are. And I mean, that's what we're seeing. So what happens, you know, when you have less water in Great Salt Lake, it changes many things. And the first thing is salt content in Great mm -hmm. Salt Lake. Last year, we reached over 170 grams per liter. Which is quite a bit. Which is quite a bit. That's 17% salt, if you like percentages better. Um, <laughs> if you think about ocean water and tasting ocean water, that's about 3.4%. That's a great comparison for folks who maybe haven't thought about this before and just need someone to walk them through this. If you have a bowl of salt water, the salt's not going to go anywhere, but the water might. So if you have more water in it, it's less salt, like a lower percentage of salt. But then when the water goes away, it evaporates or it's being diverted. So you have less water in that bowl. The salt content is the same. So you have a higher percentage of salt, higher salinity. 
just in case you hadn't thought through that, listeners. <laughs> yeah, so it gets as water levels decrease, the salt doesn't go anywhere, and in every liter of water and every little volume of water, there's more salt. And the things that live in Great Salt Lake, they've evolved to live in salty places. So they're, you know, very including good. Including brine shrimp. Including brine shrimp, including the microorganisms that can be green or red or blue or all sorts of colors. They've all evolved, and the brine fly larvae, they've all mm -hmm. evolved to live in a salty place. But right now they're kind of, they're reaching their, their top of their salinity tolerance. I mean, what that means is they're just going to re they're stressed out. Their body is stressed out. They're using more energy just to survive. And so they produce less babies. That means less food for birds mm -hmm. or less food for the industry. Yeah. So we have this increasing salt content. And then at the same time, we have these shorelines that are shrinking and exposing all of this lake bed. And on part of the lake bed are these reef like structures that are called microbialites. And they're like a mat of photosynthetic algae. So it's like green. It makes algae. Okay. It, and they're, is it that they almost look like salt crystals and they grow? Yeah. Like they kind of look like a look, maybe half of a basketball size. Like if you saw a basketball kind of plunked in the yeah. sediment that looks like kind of brown or green, kind of slimy and huh, weird. That's cool. And <laughs> those structures, because they are photosynthetic, they have to be in the light. They have to have sunlight. And that means they're just on the very periphery of the lake where it's the most shallow, mm -hmm. where it gets the most and light. And they need that water. They need the water and they need the light. And this year what happened is most of those microbialites were exposed and they dried out and bleached just like... Ugh like coral reefs, like yeah. they're dying and bleaching. We think that they supply, well, so Dr. Bonnie Baxter's lab has measured somewhere around, they produce about 30% of the primary productivity. Oh wow! So 30% of the bottom of the food chain probably won't be back this year. And so we're watching this because we don't know we don't know if we put more water on them, if they'll regrow. Yeah. If they'll come back, if they'll come back and we don't know how long it will take. Will it take five minutes or will it take 10 years? Cause yeah. <laughs> you know, these structures have probably taken thousands of years to become these, you know, basketball size humps that are on the bottom of the lake. And so this year is a huge experiment. Yeah. I mean, and that's so scary. I didn't know that about the microbialites. And you'll see different. It's actually one of the sources of funding that I talked about is going to go to mapping those microbialites. That's cool. We have a map of that, but we know that the current information is not all the way correct. Yeah. And that always happens in science, right? Like we <laughs> get, we get like better technology mm -hmm. and then we can map them better using satellites. Yeah. And so we're working on updating that. And so even some of that extent knowledge is unknown. Gosh, well, that's cool for me to learn. I didn't know that beforehand at all. Another big threat that's talked about a lot, especially by Utah physicians for healthy environment is that as the lake bed goes down, because it's such a shallow lake, and I'm sure all of my listeners have heard some version of this before, but it exposes a lot of dust and the Salt Lake Valley already experiences a lot of air pollution. And then that dust gets picked up and it's really fine dust 
and it has a lot of heavy metals in it and toxins because Great Salt Lake is a terminal lake, meaning that you have stuff flowing into it, water flowing into it, but water doesn't flow out, it evaporates out. So all the toxins that it carries, whether it's maybe pesticides from agriculture or rubber from tires that it gets washed off the road and then into the groundwater, or even if it's just natural toxins that exist in the environment, they're all accumulating in the lake bed. And then once it's exposed and it becomes dust and it gets airborne and then it flies into our city and then we breathe it in, that can be pretty bad for you. I'm gl- I always think about the birds and the bugs. And, when I, <laughs> and I, I have to admit that I'm sure bad air quality will impact them. But when we started talking to legislators this year, it was kind of this wake-up call of, oh, yeah, I need to talk about dust and property values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I worked for Utah Physicians for Healthy Environment. Air pollution was the number one thing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, working with greats so like Audubon, it's like, yeah, the dust will probably mess with the birds as well mm-hmm. because we know air pollution is affecting them just mm-hmm. as it affects us, if not maybe more intensely because they have less tissue less body tissue Mm -hmm. than we do because they're smaller. So Dr. Kevin Perry and his collaborators have, he's at the university of Utah and he has collaborators at BYU and USU. It's called dust squared and (laughs) which I love. They have this like cool name, but dust squared, they got this NSF grant to study dust off of the bed of great salt lake. And I would encourage Kevin Perry is around a lot and has done a lot of different podcasts and webinars and things. But the gist of their research is that yes, dust is getting into our human environment through Great Salt Lake. We know in general where the hot spots are. The bed of Great Salt Lake isn't equal. Yeah. Some spots are really prone to being dust borne. Some kind of have this salt crust. And so we know where those hot spots are. We know what levels the water needs to be at to mitigate those hot spots. And I think we should really pay attention to that. We know And I can't tell you the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we know if we want to mitigate dust by 50%, we can raise the lake level to this. If we want to mitigate it by 80%, it has to be at this. And I will tell you that that number in between those is not that big because the lake is shallow. I mean, essentially what we need to do is we need to cover up enough so that it doesn't get exposed in the fall. So that makes me think of what you said earlier. Like we have all the tools. We know all the things that we need to do. We just need to do it or be able to do it, you know, based on laws and Mm -hmm. the way that we can release water and yeah. Yeah. Move it around. Yeah. So cool. That's interesting. You said Dr. Perry. Yep. Dr. Kevin Perry. Dr. Kevin Perry. P E R R Y. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'll maybe I'll bother him sometime. You should. He's, you know, he did. He, he has a bike that he's ridden over 2000 miles around great salt Lake. Most people would take an ATV Mm -hmm. and the great salt Lake is a really fun place to take an ATV, (laughs) but it's a very dangerous place to take an ATV because you, 
you can kick up that crust yeah. that holds the dust in. And so you can disturb dis- the environment. Yeah. And so he rode a bike. He rode this bike around over 2,000 miles. Did they miles. do a news story on him mm-hmm. in the Tribune? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there was someone else who also paddled around the lake. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was Scott Baxter. Okay. And there's somebody else that's doing that. Who I there's somebody else doing that yeah, right now. Yeah, a new guy. Mm-hmm. Another guy doing it. Okay, cool. Dr. Kevin Perry, I'll look him up. My next question is, in a really quick Google search, several times, Google searching you, of course, <laughs> several times I found that you like birds and bugs. That was just stated. Like, Jamie likes birds and bugs. Why? Why do you like birds and bugs? What interests you about them? Um, well, honestly... I grew up in the city. I grew up in Marie, Utah, and in a pretty urban place. And I remember the bugs. Like, you could always catch bugs. You could always watch bugs. <laughs> and, like, there, and being a girl, too, there was like almost this power in rebellion, yeah. in liking bugs and scaring your cousin with a, a <laughs> giant June beetle or, you know, whatever it was. And I just, I just was always super fascinated with them. And then, I've always had this water and it goes, I mean, it goes back to those things that you experience when you're young and impressionable. Like in Mm -hmm. high school, I had this really awesome teacher who, we didn't have environmental science teachers until this one person came in, Jamie Dewis. And she had us working in streams with students and looking at water bugs. So we were looking at dragonfly nymphs and stoneflies and mayflies, you know, turning under rocks and seeing like these worlds that you could never imagine were there until you like had somebody to say, turn this over. And so it's cool that this teacher was also a female, I assume. Yeah, she was. And her name was Jamie. I know. Isn't that weird? (laughs) She's like my spirit teacher. I never was a teacher, but she, you know, she was pregnant when she was teaching. Like we would go snowshoeing and she had like a giant (laughs) belly on her. And then you're like, Oh, so I don't have to just lay in bed when I'm pregnant. I can like work and snowshoe. And so basically liking bugs is an act of feminism. Ooh, I love it. It's like, cooking. That's my other thing. Is it's my active rebellion that I don't cook. Nice. <laughs> it's my active feminism. Love it. <laughs> but I just fell in love with them. I fell in love with the streams and I mm-hmm. just was always really impacted by ocean going to tide pools and seeing sea cucumbers. And so at Utah State, I started studying, it was a fisheries degree. And it's really thinking about like what bugs are in the water yeah. that the fish are going to eat. That was my focus. It's a fisheries degree, but it was yeah. like really about what bugs are in the water. And, and then you took that to Great Salt Lake, and there are no fish, but there are birds. I, the first bird I saw, that I was like, I want to know what that is. It had tall blue legs, and it had a black and white back, and it had an orange head, <laughs> and like an upturned bill. And you can probably guess what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of the name, but American Abs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Like I watched this bird go by and I was like, oh my God, I have to know what that is. And that's when Mm -hmm. I got my first bird book. Nice. The Avocet. Avocets are beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think they're one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Those and black cap chickadees. That was the Mm -hmm. first bird because I grew up hearing those. The... And I just wanted to know what that was. And I randomly went on this snowshoe birding thing Cooper Farr, who works at Tracy Aviary, 
um, was like, yeah, that's a that's a black capped chickadee. And I was like, oh my god, I need to know birds. So thanks, Cooper. Thanks, Tracy Aviary. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. One other thing that I just want to make sure I leave you with, we've talked about salty places at Great Salt Lake, and that's really my science, is mm-hmm. like the salty places at Great Salt Lake that we study eared grebes or the pelicans that nest. But Great Salt Lake is one of the most diverse places on the planet in terms of both habitat and salt content. And I really think that that's an important distinction where we live in this place that isn't the most diverse place on the planet. And I think sometimes I wonder if that's why we as a community haven't embraced it is because it's not just one lake. It's like this really super diverse place that's freshwater to super hyper saline and like everything in between that produces every kind of bug. And I mean, it, it just is a really, really, really special place on the planet. Yeah. I think it was two podcast episodes ago I talked about the research that I've been doing with queer birders in Great Salt Lake. And my argument was that birds, birding, and Great Salt Lake are all super queer and all need visibility, as does the queer community. There are things that we understand. There are things that we see in movies, like white heterosexual relationships between a man and a woman. And then they get married, and that's it. And... There are other things that don't fit that, that a lot of people don't understand. And so either one, they don't want to pay attention to it, or two, they want to change it so that they can understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think Great Salt Lake is kind of like that. You can imagine a lake from any movie, whether it's a scary movie or just like a summer rom-com. And like, it's, you know, it's a lake. It probably has cool ecology. There are probably scientists doing stuff there. But it's not as diverse as Great Salt Lake. And Great Salt Lake is so queer and we need to understand it and we need to embrace it. And it needs the visibility that it's currently getting and hopefully it gets Mm. more. And uh, we just need to be able to support it because it affects what we're doing. And I just... Yeah. And if like, if I had advice, I think, you know, you wanted to know what do people do? Yeah. Yeah. My last question, and let's just, I'll ask it. How can people get involved and help the lake as it faces these threats? Whether that's something they can either do at home, organizations that they can get involved in, or maybe they want to get into academia, whether that's a master's or undergrad. How would you suggest folks get involved? So at this point, At Great Salt Lake, everybody needs to do everything that they can in their power to help us not kill this lake. I mean, everybody has lots of things they can do. So you, if you're a person that likes to write letters to your legislators, we need our politicians to understand that people are really, really worried about Great Salt Lake. And don't be worried about House Bill 410. Just tell people, like, I really am worried about the lake and air quality and whatever it is that you're thinking about. You can conserve water. You can start a um, ethic of water conservation in your cities and your towns. Right now, and I go back and forth, but right now I feel like the most important thing is for us to talk about Great Salt Lake. And so maybe it's one little specific thing that you heard in this podcast that you want to tell your grandma or you want to tell your cousin or you want to tell your friend. 
And I think we have misunderstood and kind of been in this place of apathy about the stinky buggy lake, (laughs) that changing that narrative about how important it is, is really important. You can, I think, telling people, I think going to the lake, the lake is really weird. Sometimes you're going to go and you're going to get out of your car and the bugs are going to accost you. you alive. (laughs) And you can just get, you have the power to get right back in your car and take your binoculars and drive down the causeway and have a lovely day Mm -hmm. and not get bit by bugs. Some days you're going to get out and you're not going to want to get back in. You're going to just want to like walk along the beach or go, you know. And it is a beautiful place, especially in the winter when you're not getting out very much. It's a beautiful place Mm -hmm. to go watch the sunset and it sets early so you don't have to stay out late, but it's so gorgeous and there's so many different parts of the lake. So yeah, yeah, go like make a relationship, (laughs) you know, if you have a bad time, go out again at a different time. And then if you're a legislator, you should be (laughs) working on legislation to protect Great Salt Lake. And you join Friends of Great Salt Lake does really awesome. You know, they just had a conference. They do a lot of advocacy work. Mm -hmm. And they have membership. So you can sign up to be a member and they'll send you emails and they'll let you know when you can send letters to your representatives. Mm -hmm. They also have volunteer days that you can go I, I know they have a cleanup at very least because they do that in conjunction with Great Salt Lake Audubon. I'm sure they have a number of other events. But anywhere you anywhere you can get involved in like your watershed will impact Great Salt Lake and you'll find really cool organizations to like volunteer for or donate money to and mm-hmm. pretty soon we should have there will be a water trust that people can donate to. But I would say just pay attention and the most important and the easiest thing is to keep talking about it. Yeah. Which is something you hear a lot for all sorts of movements because it's the simplest and it really is effective. So talk about it and uh, get involved. And come out. Come out as a Great Salt Lake lover. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Jamie, could you tell us about Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster? Because you've been working there for about 13 years. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm really proud of Great Salt Lake Institute. I'm really stoked to be part of it. Um, It it started in 2009, and our mission is to connect people to Great Salt Lake through research and education. And so we are an undergraduate institution, so we just have undergrads, and we have them do really novel research on different parts of the lake, pelicans or brine shrimp or microorganisms, and then we tell people about it, Mm -hmm. which is the cool part. And you do that through different events, right? We do. We do that through different events. We wrote the first children's book that is about Great Salt Lake. Which is gorgeous, <laughs> by the way. I need to buy one. I keep seeing it and I'm like, oh, I should get Oh, it. I'll give you one. Yeah. <laughs> I bought one of the scarves. Yeah, no There worries. are scarves, hats. Yeah, bandanas. Dish towels. Dish towels. You guys <laughs> need a bunch of just really cute, irresistible stuff. Yeah. So we wrote that children's book. There was never a children's book, and we put a lot of research. The premise of the book is these children are looking for the Great Salt Lake monster, and they find all of this other cool sciencey stuff instead, like my, <laughs> uh, microbialites and brine shrimp and pelicans. And then when the pand, you know, we've been in this pandemic, how we should recognize that. And we edited a 16 chapter book. The title is Great Salt Lake Biology: A Terminal Lake in a Time of Change. Cool. And it was 
was the first book that's devoted exclusively to the biology of Great Salt Lake and was written by experts in their field. This is not a children's book. And this is not a children's book. (laughs) Like, this is 16 chapters of current in-depth research. And Is there an audio version of it? No. Well, so that's where (laughs) we published this book right after the pandemic started, and we were like, how are we going to get this information out? Like, normally we'd be talking at conferences. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Salty Science started. Okay. So we took to the internet, and we started doing webinars that were about these different chapters. And you can go to the Westminster College Great Salt Lake Institute YouTube channel and you can find all of those salty seminars. And they're really good. I thought that maybe they might be too dense for me, but they weren't. Some of them might have been, (laughs) but you can definitely understand what's going on. So check those out. And we just have an army of undergraduate students that are working (laughs) with faculty and community members and just doing cool foundational research Mm -hmm. on different aspects of the lake. I have to say, I was so sad um, when I was thinking about getting my master's and I really wanted to do something with Great Salt Lake. And I was like, well, I should check out Westminster, Westminster University, Westminster College. College, There we go. Westminster College. Because I know that you do, like, you have the Great Salt Lake Institute, and I never realized, despite the fact that I grew up not too far away from the college, that you do not take grad students. I was so sad. I know, I know. <laughs> but the cool thing is, you know, when we started the Institute, there wasn't a whole lot of research being done and especially research that people knew were being done. And so, I mean, now there's a lot of work being done at the U of U and Mm -hmm. BYU and USU that I feel like there were little things going on, but they were maybe in a little box that Mm -hmm. nobody else could see. And I feel like now information is getting out. It's like all connecting and people are working together more. It's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, if anybody is interested in it, what's the website that they can go to to check it out? Um, Go to greatsaltlakeinstitute.org and or just google great salt lake institute at westminster college and if you're a teacher there's lots of free curriculum oh that's awesome online you know yeah cool and i think that's all the questions cool. I, so, <laughs> I talk a lot i'm sorry no, I it's talk so a long lot too. that's okay <laughs> well thank you jamie so much for coming on as always i need to thank aj for writing and performing the intro music and as my dad always says use your head and be clever Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening.